Both these statements are true. Are you ready? One, it is impossible for someone to enter into the kingdom of God based upon his own good works. And then two, it is likewise impossible for someone to be a citizen of the kingdom of God without good works. So on the surface, you know, these, these two statements seem like they're, they're, they're mutually exclusive, like they can't go together. So on the one hand, you know, there are those that assume that good people deserve to go to heaven and conversely, bad people deserve to go to hell. And those same people often assume that, well, they, they're the pretty good people, not perfect, but pretty good. And so to hear that even pretty good people can't pass the cut seems a little over the top. On the other hand, for some people in our circles, you know, recognizing the truth of that first statement that you cannot earn your way to life with God, no matter who you are, they then assume that we can't do anything good whatsoever. I mean, even the idea that God would require us to do good works seems wrong. So which is it? Are we really that bad or can we do some good? Well, in a word, yes. Yes is the answer. In biblical anthropology, that is the way the Bible thinks about what a human is, it's far more complicated, far more nuanced than how modern people tend to think about what a person is. It's like what you you see with King David, for example, and how he was simultaneously a sinner and a saint, as Martin Luther might have described him. I mean, that someone can have a heart after God's own heart, and that's God's description of David, and yet also commit sexual assault and murder speaks to a a complexity that you don't often hear about in the media or sometimes even in churches. You know, a Christian, far from being perfect, can do good things, and they can do sinful ones too, sometimes heinous actions like David or like our slave-owning or pro-Jim Crow ancestors in this country, even as at times they were faithful to God. You know, as the book of James points out, with the very same mouth, even within the very same breath, we can both curse our neighbor and bless our God and not even be aware that we're doing that. In fact, that may be you today. So if both these statements are true, that good works don't get us into the kingdom of God, but as a member of the kingdom, you are required to do good. What does that sort of person actually look like? Well, today we are ending our little short series within a series on the book of Exodus that I've been calling uh, The Beautiful Life. We have actually finished the Ten Commandments, and now we're picking up the story again. And it picks back up with verse 18 of chapter 20, where Moses is at the foot of Mount Sinai with the people of God. Let me read what happens. This begins with verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. 
You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make uh, for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for this time together with you, that we might uh, meditate upon your son and how good he is, how righteous he is, how much mercy we have received through his life, his death, his resurrection, and how we have confidence now that he is ruling from the right hand of you. And Lord, we pray for the spirit to be among us, that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear and feet that would follow you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's let's get the picture of, of what's happening here in this narrative. So Moses and Israel together are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they can see And they can hear God on top of the mountain in really spectacular fashion. In fact, I don't know that you could really put it into prose exactly how fabulous that that vision must have been. And they've, they've heard the Ten Commandments from God and what they see of him uh, is absolutely terrifying. So heaven, God's throne room, has come to earth. That's what they're seeing. God has spoken to them from his throne room that is now sitting basically on top of this mountain. And it's so terrifying that they don't want God to speak to them directly anymore because they fear it will kill them. And it's like when uh, Isaiah is ushered into God's throne room in Isaiah 6, and he instantly recognizes that he's a dead man because of his sin. And he sees God in all his glory. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, he just wants to run and hide. And that's the right response. Our sin is that bad. And that's Israel too, right here. And so instead of gazing at God in wonder and adoration, they cower in fear. So they beg Moses to intercede for them. And so they basically want Moses to be a mediator, to speak God's word to them, and in turn for Moses to represent them to God. And as an aside, this is exactly what Jesus does for us. Moses anticipated Jesus. So Moses agrees to this, and he tells them not to fear If God wanted to kill them, he would have already done so. No, God's testing them because he wants them to draw near. So most people assume God's tests come because he's trying to punish us or because he's he's trying to push us away. No, it's in fact the opposite. It's the opposite. God wants us closer and closer to him. The testing is just like what happened with, with Adam and Eve. See, God gave them a law in order to see if they would be faithful to him. And this happens repeatedly in scripture. And the thing is, God wants us to be faithful. He doesn't want us to stumble. He doesn't want us to fall. He wants us to be faithful. Like with Adam and Eve, God wants to commune with his people. And like Abraham, he wants his people to trust him. And he's already given Israel here good reasons for all of this. And in turn, good reasons not to sin against him. And the question is, will they be what Adam failed to be? Now, it's one thing 
to receive instruction. It's quite another thing to take it to heart and actually do it. So it's one thing to have, for example, daily quiet times. It's another thing to live it out and have these 10 words, these 10 commandments that Israel has heard, has it actually penetrated into the people's hearts or is it, is it stuck in their ears, so to speak? And by the way, this is the perpetual question for God's people. We face this question every single day. So as part of this testing, God gives Moses three additional commandments before Moses was to go into God's presence and and disappear from their view. And the question is, what will the people do while Moses is absent from them? It's like what Adam and Eve faced. Would they keep faith? Would they keep faith when it appeared like God was not with them? You know, all parents go through this exact same exercise with their kids. How will their kids behave when the parent isn't there to keep them in check? It's not as though you know, God isn't with our kids, but how will they respond when mom and dad are absent? And it's, it's an issue of maturity. You know you've reached maturity when you no longer need your parent to hold your hand or keep you in line. You've reached maturity when when you take responsibility for yourself and embody your parents' teaching. And this is exactly what was in view in Genesis 3 when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve. Here it is again. Is Israel mature enough to keep faith with God? Have these commandments, these 10 words, moved from their ears to their heart? So here's these three additional laws that God gives to Moses, and they're all really of one piece. First, Israel was not to make gods of silver or gold to go alongside worship of the true God, uh, nor should they make gods of gold at all. So they, they can't worship God as they see fit, and they must not worship some other God either. So that's, that's the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments just slammed together. Second, the people were allowed to make altars to God at this time and sacrifice on them. That is, God invited them to worship him. But those altars had to be in places God chose, and the altars had to be made according to God's wishes. So in other words, the people absolutely were invited to come worship God, but they they couldn't define the terms of that worship. They couldn't make God into their own image or shape him to their personal preferences. Third, and this is, again, related to the first two, Basically, Israel was not allowed to worship uh, as pagans did, which means, uh, I'm trying to say this gently, worship could not be done in the style of fertility cults and orgies, and that's exactly what's in view with that, that third law there. So, you know, taken together, God wants his people to worship him. He wants that. He wants to commune with him. He wants to draw near, but he will not be defined by them or their sin, or by other gods. And on a first read, you know, this, this seems pretty obvious. Didn't they already get this with, with the Ten Commandments? I mean, it's like a, like a husband asking his wife to be faithful to her wedding vows. But in reality, our temptation, just like Israel's temptation, is always, always towards unfaithfulness. It's always towards worshiping God or reading his commandments on our terms or outright just denying his laws altogether. So take, for example, something uh, pastor and author Dan White recently mentioned. He said, I did a straw poll on my book tour 
with about 830 people in 2019. So let me just stop. So he's an author. He's doing a book tour. Uh, so he's going to various cities, kind of giving a seminar, a talk, basically summarizing his book. And of those 13 cities and the 830 people did, he, they came. He did an unscientific poll, right? Here's what he says. 76% of those who identified as progressive see loving enemies as complicity with injustice. 78% of those who identified as conservative see loving enemies as compromise with immorality. What was illuminating in our workshops is that most Christians do not see enemy love as the route to addressing immorality or injustice in the life of another. Somehow they missed how Jesus did it. For the few folks who believed loving enemies was central to being a Christian, many reduced it down to having sentimental nice thoughts. So, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is not just a central part of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It is, by the way. It is central to actually how he pursued his ministry. Had this not been central to his work, there would be no salvation for us. We would not be here. And Jesus, in turn, tells us, his disciples, to model our lives on his. But how easy is it for Christians, you know, whether they're left-leaning or right-leaning or somewhere else, to define Jesus' teaching in light of contemporary politics? It's like what Dr. Michael Feigl recently quipped. He said, can you name one Christian who became more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled by getting more deeply involved in politics. So just put this in terms of the ninth commandment and bearing false witness. How many of us are really willing to love people we disagree with, even just in what we do online? Never you mind when things get really hard in a real world Good Samaritan type scenario. You know, so the issue is not merely intellectually understanding Jesus's teaching. We all get it. It's whether that teaching has made its way to our heart and permeates our behavior. It's whether we are allowing Jesus's teaching to define our politics or we're allowing our politics to define Jesus's teaching. So these, these laws that we see here have the effect of revealing whether Israel was pursuing the God of her salvation on his terms or on her own. That's the test. That's the test. And we won't get the answer to that test for another 12 chapters. So Moses gives these laws on, on worship, these additional laws on worship, and then he disappears right into God's glory cloud on the mountain. What then follows in the book of Exodus, and I'm just going to take you through the next 12 chapters real fast. What then happens in the book of Exodus are laws that further build out from the Ten Commandments. That's chapters 21 through 23. It's called the Book of Ordinances. Then in chapter 24, Moses heads back down the mountain. The people re-up on their wedding vows with those additional laws from 21 through 23 added to it. Then Moses, having gotten that agreement with the people, Moses, Aaron, the high priest or the future high priest, and 70 elders of the people, and that number 70 is important. It always represents totality. And so you'll get that number uh, with the people of God sometimes. And Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders, they are feasted by God in his, his throne room on top of the mountain, which anticipates our future life with God, or as Revelation calls it, the marriage feast of the Lamb, 
which we will actually be looking forward to and celebrating here in just a few minutes. And just as an aside, just go through the Old Testament and you'll see it. Biblical worship always includes food. It always includes food. God is constantly reaffirming that he will feed us from his own table, even in the presence of darkness or in the presence of our enemies. Just think of Psalm 23. So keep going. From chapters 25 through 31, there are very specific details about how Israel was to make the tabernacle complete with utensils and altars and basins and lampstands and the architectural structure of the space, how to pay for it, which artisans to employ to make stuff, how the priests were supposed to dress and how they were supposed to be set apart for their work. And then it culminates with more instructions on the Sabbath. And most Christians just, you know, we breeze right through that going, I don't know what this is. Next, next. It is so important. It is so important to understanding what's happening. You see, the tabernacle wasn't just going to be a nice place to worship. It was a new Eden, a new temple where God would dwell together with his people. And not only was Israel seen as a new Adam, the priesthood itself was a visible representation of a new Adam set afresh in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. Remember, you know, God wants, he wants his people to draw near to him. And these chapters on the tabernacle, they're not just random instructions. This is how God intended for Israel to worship him in a place of his own choosing. That represented a new turn in human history. It's Eden 2.0. And it would result in Sabbath rest and communion with God. So Exodus, the book of Exodus begins with slavery. And it ends with Sabbath rest. That's what God wants for his people that's the whole book in a nutshell. So Moses receives this information, those, all those chapters over the course of 40 days. And during that time, what is Israel doing? What's Israel doing with Moses away? Well, that's chapter 32. And it's the story of the golden calf. And it is not a story of maturity. So Israel, in short order, though, through the man set apart to be the high priest, and that's it's just sadly ironic, it's Aaron. Through him, they break all three of those laws about worship. I mean, all of them. But this isn't like a kid who, I don't know, got busted stealing candy from the candy basket while mom and dad were outside. No, this is like a bride on her wedding day getting caught with an ex-boyfriend. That's what this is like. And the question is, how? How did this happen? I mean, God is right there. How did this happen? How could Israel commit to, to marry this God and then so quickly reject him for other lovers? Is it because the people did not know what God required of them? No, they, they not only heard God's voice, they feared it to the point of not wanting to hear it anymore. Is it because they, they didn't know whether or not they could actually trust God? Again, no. They had seen this God destroy the Egyptians, miraculously give them safe passage, passage across large bodies of water, and miraculously feed them in the wilderness. In fact, he was still doing it at this moment. There was no question he was God. They had experienced his power and his tender faithfulness repeatedly. So is it because they, they didn't know? They didn't know what they, they were agreeing to. Again, no, Moses carefully read everything to them and they said, yes, twice. They knew exactly what they were doing 
and they knew better. They knew better than to do it, and yet they did it anyway because it's what they really wanted to do. God's word was stuck in their ears. God describes his people in Exodus 32 as a stiff-necked people. That is, they would not turn. They would not listen. Like a stubborn mule, they could not be led and would rather choose the path of death over the path of life. It's like how Paul talks in in Romans 7, at the end of chapter 7 about the law. He knows what is good and what is right, but he chooses not to do it. And what he knows he should not do, he must not do, he chooses to do it anyway. The issue is not intellectual. I mean, everyone who commits murder knows it's wrong. It's an issue of the heart. And it's precisely why the law functions as a test It's intended to reveal what people really love. And that's been my hope for our study on the Ten Commandments, that it would be a test for us, really revealing what we we love. And, you know, Christian maturity, then, is not not found in the abundance of what you know. You know, so often that's that's what Presbyterianism kind of reduces down to. No, it's found in how you live. It's how the truth has made it to your heart and then to your hands and your feet. Theologians have for a long time identified three uses of the law in Scripture that I think absolutely get at this point. The first use of the law is that it functions like a mirror. You know, like one of those those mirrors in stores that have those hideously strong fluorescent lights that, that expose everything about you. And when you look at yourself in such a light, you see every little imperfection. Well, the law is just like that. When you look at yourself in such a light and you see all of that, it should drive you. It should drive you away from self-righteousness and pride. Like Isaiah, you're supposed to see, one, just how beautiful and good and righteous God is, and two, just how much we aren't. You know, like Isaiah, we should be wrecked over our sin. So, for example, last week we talked about the 10th commandment and coveting and how at root the issue is our twisted desires. Well, without the law, we wouldn't know that our desires are so twisted. We would just take them to be normal. In fact, this is exactly what the world does. The world argues that its desires are normal and good and that it's the Christian God who is offensive and twisted and evil for denying those desires. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, you know, one of the most important things the law does is kill us. It condemns us. It removes all pretense to pride and self-righteousness. The law, you know, if we're taking it seriously, should drive us right to Christ and his mercy. It's why Paul ends Romans 7 by thanking Jesus Christ for redeeming him from his body of death. It's why Moses in chapter 32, after the golden calf, is such a beautiful type of Christ as he pleads for his people who rightly deserve death. And that is exactly what Jesus does for you. When you come to the Lord's Supper today, you should see that. That this is a symbol of what Jesus has done for you. The second use of the law is what is known as the civil use. And it recognizes that the law is incapable of changing hearts. But it can restrain evil. So there is no law, no law that can compel my neighbor to love me. But there are laws that can keep my neighbor from murdering me. And I like those laws. I think you do too. 
And while I, I don't agree with posting the Ten Commandments in courthouses, I do think Christians should advocate for the principles involved in God's law to make for a better and just society. I mean, I think that's just part of what it means, according to Micah, to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. The third use of the law is what I've been highlighting with this series. It's, it's the good and proper use of the law. It's the desire to grow into maturity. It's seeing the Ten Commandments as, as wedding vows or as the family code, as things we should want to do out of love for our God. And it's exactly what Jesus is after, exactly what he's after in the Sermon on the Mount or Paul with the fruit of the Spirit. This is how we should want to be. It's the life we should be pursuing in simple, ordinary, daily life. So when you take those three uses of the law together, the Ten Commandments, one, should expose your sin and it should cut you to the core. I hope that's happened. Over the course of the series, I hope that's happened because let me tell you something, it's done it to me. Like I get in the pulpit and I think, well, here comes the hypocrite, here we go. It should cut you to the core. It should drive you to want to confess and seek Jesus and long for his mercy. I mean, just think of Psalm 51 and you've got it. That should be you. It should also move you to want to walk in his ways and fight against your sin because you belong to him. It's like what Sam Albury likes to say about discipleship. Discipleship asks, what does God love that I'm tempted to hate? And what does God hate that I'm tempted to love? What does God want me to let go of that I'm tempted to grip onto? And what does God want me to grip onto that I'm tempted to let go of? So what did Israel really want to hold onto in their worship of the golden calf? In their immaturity, what were they unwilling to let go of? When Christians reject, love your enemies, in our immaturity, what are we tempted to hate that God actually loves. But the law should also move you, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, perfect example of this, to apply the law to your community and seek justice and righteousness for your neighbors. It's impossible. It's impossible to love your enemies from the privacy of your mind and not in real-world situations too. So let's go back to how I opened this sermon. Both these statements are true. It is impossible for someone to enter the kingdom of God based upon his own good works. And it is likewise impossible for someone to be a citizen of the kingdom of God without good works. Can you now see how? Can you now see how both of those things are true? There is no one, there is no one in this room who can claim the moral high ground on anything. No one. No one is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, if anything, I stand more condemned than most of you because it's my job to know better and I fail every day. Like Isaiah, without atonement, we are lost. But once you've been brought into God's kingdom through his son, through that atonement, then you are called to a different way of life. This is the New Testament, y'all. You're called to a different way of life and the mistake comes when we think, one, I can't do anything good at all. Don't read Paul then. But two, I'm better than the pagans around me. Again, don't read Paul. 
God's law does not kill you and leave you for dead. God kills in order to make you alive. The law drives you to Christ and he has done it all so that you may live as a citizen of his kingdom. See, God's kingdom then does not presume moral pretentiousness in which we are now superior to those outside the kingdom. No, we of all people should know better. The people who know that good works cannot They cannot get you into the kingdom. Those who are dependent on Christ and his righteousness are also the same ones who think God has set us apart as a royal priesthood in order to walk in his ways for the good of this world. And that way, the way of the king, it's the way of humility, not self-righteousness. It's like the words of Augustine, who was he was speaking about his former teacher, Ambrose. He says, And this is before Augustine was a Christian. He says, I began to like him at first, indeed not as a teacher of truth, for I had absolutely no confidence in your church, but as a human being who was kind to me. You know, what Augustine saw in Ambrose was a person who is dependent on Christ and endeavored to walk in his way. So in other words, the truth, the word of God was expressed through Ambrose's kindness. And I'm convinced, even as I I struggle, I struggle to live this way, that the way of the king, that the way of maturity is humility clothed in kindness. Jesus straight up said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. Now think about that. Think about that. God most often delights in demonstrating his power not in spectacular visual effects on top of Mount Sinai, though clearly he does that, but in the weakness of his people. Jesus most revealed God's heart on the cross. It's like what Paul Tripp recently said. He said, weakness is the Lord's workroom where by grace his clay is softened and molded and refined. That's where maturity is to be found, right there. So what have the Ten Commandments done for you? Well, I I hope they have shown you just how weak you really are and how good and kind your God really is and how that's a good place to be in. I hope they drive you to, to daily seek his face, to want to commune with him, to find your meaning in your life in him because he wants you to draw near. He wants you to commune with him. He made you for this. He desires this for you. And I hope they encourage you to want to be a better person. Not because it will earn you anything, it won't. But because God has already set his love on you. He has set you apart to walk in his ways. And it is a beautiful life. See, he loves you and he delights in you and he made you for himself and he wants this beautiful life for you. So may his, his power be made perfect in us, we who are these fragile and perishing little jars of clay. May our God work in us, his glory. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. You are faithful to a faithless people. You walk with people who do not want to walk with you. You 
patiently teach us your ways and correct us and help us to turn back and back again, even though we tend to be a stiff-necked people. Thank you for your grace and your kindness. You are the best father there is. I pray this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.